Hunting is not easy. It never has been. It takes dedication, motivation, a lot of patience, and quality gear. If you manage a food plot, put up stands, or need just one more game camera, we can help at MidwayUSA.com. We opened our doors in 1977 and continue to put customers first by offering super fast, same day shipping. For just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. When it comes to hunting boots, how many pairs does one man need? Well, how many seasons are there? Turkey season? Deer season? Duck season? Dove season? Honey, how many pairs of boots does one man need? At least one more pair. For just about everything for hunting, go to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Larry Potterfield with Midway USA. Thanks for your business. Welcome, boys and squirrels, to the Northern Outcast Outdoors podcast, The Outcast, your home for all things hunting, fishing, and ball busting related. Powered by Citizens Hunting Co., AF Custom Calls, and Hour on a Limb Manufacturing. But we're we're rolling. Whenever you guys want to, if you want to bring in a little intro, Boomer, yeah. And then, what uh, uh, what episode is this? We ask this every single time. Uh, hold on, let me look real quick. Sorry. I think the we're so professional, <laughs> so professional. We'll do one of those cheesy voiceovers where Boomer will just actually say some number. So and then we'll just put it this over. will be episode six, season two. So this is officially officially six. season two, episode six. We kind of had a little breaky break since. Uh, I guess the archery 3D season wrapped up and uh, kind of getting back in here, trying to book a little content up here and uh, keep it rolling. Today, I was pretty excited about the guest we got today. Oh, yeah. He, uh, just to give a little. ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency you can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at ButcherBox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Lester has his master's from OK State for zoology and fisheries, has worked for Lawrence Terminator Lures, is currently working for Dynamic Sponsorships, one of the leading marketing and PR firms in the big world of professional fishing. More than 500 published short stories for Bassmaster and other various fishing outlets and is on the voting committee for the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame, a lost local boy in his own right. <laughs> Welcome back. The people's champ, Alan McGuffin. Man, it's good to, 
how the hell are you on guys thank you so so much for having me i I, what a cool deal to reconnect with with uh western pennsylvania what a what a neat deal man oh and you texted me the other day and you said i think it was like i haven't seen a 724 number in a long time and i was like what it was pretty cool connection probably a good thing yeah yeah, (laughs) he's not wrong about that either yeah, my mom and dad. My mom and dad have lived in the same home for 52 years, and I went to New Brighton High School down in Beaver County, around Rochester, Manaka, that part of the world, the Ohio River, the Beaver River there. Yeah, so I graduated there, and then I went out to Juniata College. Juniata's out in central Pennsylvania, uh, near Lake Raystown, and that's kind of where I, I went there really for three reasons. I want. I knew I wanted to go to a small school. I knew I didn't want to go terribly far from home, and I knew I wanted to study. Uh, ecology and fisheries so that kind of narrowed down my choices and it was a really tough school I I kind of regret that a little bit because man I, I just all we did was we studied uh, a room with five guys and every one of them are, are doctors so that kind of tells you um, how you know that, that academically it was geared to for pre-meds and pre-dental people and yeah it was it was intense but continued on and followed my education and and course and University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma, and, and chose the University of Oklahoma. And that, I mean, that's really as simple as it is. That, that's how I ended up there. It was my, my education and career and, and dreams of being around this business that, as I told you yesterday, Braden, I, I'm literally the guy that packed up his dreams and in, into a car and a truck, and my parents followed me a thousand miles to Oklahoma, and, and the rest is history 30 years later. I mean, the, the drive to really commit to going you know balls deep into the deep end i mean that that takes a lot just to do that let alone actually carve your own little corner of the bass fishing industry out for yourself there yeah thank you i appreciate the compliment it's it's always been passion driven man and still and it still is today you know i mean there certainly i'm very aware that people think i have the coolest job in the world and and i would most days agree with that but it doesn't <laughs> it, it doesn't come without sacrifice and 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 the sacrifice is the the lonely 13-hour drive to get up here to lacrosse wisconsin where i'm covering the elite series event this weekend or the the 16-hour drives alone out to south carolina to lake hartwell or wherever i'm going it's and it's it's not so much once i'm on site that you deal with the loneliness and the long days and all the 4 30 a.m wake-up calls it's really just the getting there and the traveling back home that you know, when you're doing that stuff alone, if you don't have a passion, I return to that word, if you don't have a passion for this, um, you'll be burnt out in a hurry. Oh, big time. Life on the road's not, not for, I mean, me and you were talking about it last night for a couple of minutes, the, the life on the road, the gypsy lifestyles, it's a tough one, even for people that are, you know, in the game, not yeah. necessarily with just fishing, you know, anything, musicians, guys that travel for work. I mean, when you're on the road that much, it's a, it's a different kind of mindset you got to be in. Yeah, it is. And you, you learn to deal with it. You know, I, I enjoy finding all the cool local eateries. And, you know, you, you if you don't embrace it, that's probably the best word. You, you learn to embrace it. It's not just go to a hotel, cover the fishing tournament and go home. I try to enjoy myself when the work's done in the evening and find the cool eateries. Or I always try to get a little bit of a fitness workout in, 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 in the midday, basically between while the guys are out on the water competing. You know, so I'll go find a cool park or a trail or something like that, get a little exercise. You, you can't just sit in a hotel room all day between morning launch and wait. No, no. So, I mean, for the people listening right now, I guess uh, at the time of recording this, Gok is 
literally, literally calling us in between <laughs> day two blast off at lacrosse and when he's got to be back to kind of deal with all the guys back at the uh, dock, but he kind of made time yeah. to call us. What's, what's that like, like a day in the life at an event like that? Yeah, that's a good question. And honestly, it's a really easy answer. And the reason <laughs> it's, it, it's an easy answer, because as I just spoke to the fact you, you, um, you learn to embrace it, the road, you learn to embrace the time out here. And so I have a pretty solid regiment of how I handle each, each day out here. So, uh, you guys are obviously out, avid outdoorsmen. A lot of my wake-up times are dictated by sunrise times, and, and that's because obviously our guys, they don't leave the dock until they're safe light. So depending on the time of the year, um, I'm going to get up anywhere from 3.45 in the morning. Those are the tough ones. That's usually in the month of June. Can yeah. you tell about I've been doing, how long I've been doing this? <laughs> June wake-up times are usually – I remember covering a tournament, I think it was last year at Gunnersville, Alabama, and literally I got up every morning at 3.45 a.m. The guys were out. I mean, we had them sent off for blast off, all the pros, by like 6 a.m. sharp. And, and dude, by the time 10 a.m. rolled around, you felt like you had been up for 27 hours. You know what I mean? That sounds like but, spring turkey season right there in a <laughs> nutshell, my guy. Right. Yeah. So to, to answer your question, get up at 3.30. That's extremely early. I would say the average wake-up call out here is 4.30 a.m. And so I get my coffee in the hotel room or wherever I'm staying, and then I head to the dock. And I'm, I'm looking to meet up with, with certain pros that are tied to the brands I represent. We currently represent Toyota trucks, Costa sunglasses, eyewear, Yamaha outboards, and uh, we do a little work for Carhartt as well. So all the pros that I work with are tied to those brands. So I hit the dock in the pre-dawn. And I start, I start gathering content, basically. And it can be something as simple as a 30-second video hit for Toyota, Team Toyota's uh, social sites. Or it could be an interview and a photograph so that I can then go back to the room and write a four or 500-word feature story. So that's once I've gathered content at the dock and the guys start their day, whether it's a practice day or a competition day, then I come back to the hotel. And that's generally when I'm working on morning content is about this time of the day. And I'll do a, a short story, typically um, run a photo through Photoshop to make sure I've got a great photo to support the story. And then I send that same story out to about five or six very popular bass fishing websites. So Bassmaster, for example, um, Bass Fan, uh, um, Bass Resource out of Washington State in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, anglerschannel.com, Bass365. So all those are very popular bass fishing websites, consumer sites, and they're all happy to have the content. And so they'll post it pretty much immediately. And then that short story will live throughout the day. I'll go back around noon and I, I catalog all that, do a screen grab and make sure I've cataloged all that PR exposure because obviously I, I am obligated to produce. It's not all fun and games. So after the, I've cataloged the story, then usually I'll go get a workout in for a half hour, an hour, grab a 20 or 30 minute nap, grab a shower and head to weigh in. And so weigh ins generally, obviously from about three in the afternoon till six, come back after weigh in. And generally my evenings are when I'm, I'm working on social media content, not just for my clients, such as Yamaha and Toyota, Costa. But also, I'll, I'll give all the content that I get at weigh-in, so photos and interviews. 
I will share that with the pros. So after they're done weighing in, they get back to wherever they're staying and crack a beer and grab a shower. And then they're, they're often getting content directly from me to post to their social media channels. So repetitive here, but content is king. And in this world that we live in, you know, it's like feeding a hungry monster, right? What was yeah. fresh and new at 10 o'clock this morning is old and done by five o'clock in the afternoon. And it's time to, it's time to produce more fresh content. So my evenings are generally tied around the distribution of content to the pros and the clients. And then I'll go get something to eat. And I'm generally in bed by nine, nine thirty because the cycle starts all over the next morning at four, four thirty in the morning. Yeah. That's actually something interesting that the three of us always kind of talk about is having regular content. I mean, you do it day after day. We struggle. I mean, obviously, we, we work other jobs and try to do the same thing, you know, on a much more limited scale. It's people's yeah. attention spans have like gone to almost nothing with cell phones and social media. I mean, it's kind of a, a double edged sword. Like you said, it, it just gets stale after a couple hours. You know, you got to keep feeding the monster. And I think that's actually a very good way to put it. Yeah. And that's, that, that brings a little bit of job security in my career, but it's also yeah. a challenge. The real challenge is, is just bringing good creativity to the, to the landscape of what I do. I mean, when you're on the hook to do it, my dad was a retired plumber and steam fitter. He was a blue collar construction guy. And, you know, it's, it's neat to have him with me. He and mom on the road with me every now and then they've, they've attended events at Lake Oneida, New York. They've been to Cayuga, New York, all stuff around your region, guys. So when yeah. I'm up that way, I'll try to include them. And, and my dad, the retired steam fitter, said one time as he just watched me go about my day, we were at Cayuga, New York, the Finger Lakes. And uh, he said, but I, I just I don't know how the hell you come up with new ideas every single morning. And I said, well, dad, that's that's a challenge. That's the challenge of what I do. That's the stuff that I roll over in bed sometimes at two o'clock in the morning and think, who, what pro am I going to target first this morning? Who did I work with yesterday? Who have I not worked with in a while? And then the big question, what the heck are we going to talk about, right? And I, I love the fact that my employer and my clients give me creative freedom, right? I, the thing that I just can't hardly deal with or stand is, you know, we have something in the business called editorial calendars. And essentially, it's exactly what it sounds like. Someone lays out a, a month ahead or even two months ahead of, here's what we want you to write about the second week of June. Well, I, I hate that. I hate editorial calendars because it so limits your creativity because I have certainly learned that 27 years in the business, 16 years out here on tour, the best stories, the best storytelling is spawned out of generally always something spontaneous that I didn't count on when I left the hotel for the dock that morning. You know, it's it's a conversation with a pro who tells me something that you're like, man, there it is. That's super intriguing and that's really cool. But I, I don't plan for that stuff. And I certainly don't map it out on an editorial calendar a week or a month or two months in advance. Oh, yeah. for sure. A lot of that creativity comes out of just organic encounters with people. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we we have a saying in the business, you know, it's it's kind of it's all about being here, right? can't you can't do what i do and i don't think you can do any facet of what i do very well if you're not on site you have to have that human interaction with the the brandon lesters and the gerald swindles and the matt aries and the kevin van dams of the world you have to you have to have a rapport with those guys you got to be able to look them in the eyes and 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 
and be face to face to hear the story, see the emotion. And that's, that's where great content comes from. In my opinion, it, it seems less fake. Like it feels like, you know, not scripted, you know, you can yeah. always tell when someone's, you know, sort of scripted or something like that. I mean, it really shows, I think. Yep. And I, I don't, I don't I like stuff like that either. I, you know, yeah, but in the same sense too, though, I mean, you think about it when you go day by day like that and, and you don't really have that calendar. I mean, there's two different kind of mindsets. There's the people that have to be planned out, you know, four months in advance to be productive. Yeah, that's true. Too. And then there's people that can take it day by day, week by week. Um, but it adds a lot of stress as well. You know, that that constant, what am I going to do next? What can I get next? That's That's a lot of stress added to the position as well. Yep, that's that's the cause of me turning over in bed at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, though, Brandon Polinick, we were actually talking about this right before yeah. you called in. We were uh, talking about that freaking bass he caught underneath the bridge doing a figure eight, which yeah, the dude can't miss this year, which is insane. <laughs> and that was just like another, awesome just like, are you kidding me? But his social media, his YouTube channel, is like top notch. I mean, S- Scott Martin was probably one of the first ones to like really dive into like the whole YouTube realm, but he is absolutely killing it on like every level. I feel like over the last couple yeah. of years, especially. Yeah. So I, I think you're right on all counts. And, um, I think the world of Brandon, um, got a bear hug from his grandpa yesterday, actually <laughs> way in his family. He's got such a neat family. You know, he's from Idaho and Idaho's a long way from everything we seem to do in this sport and yeah. his family. When, when he's at a, you know, when he's got something big on the line, like he does this weekend with the angler, angler of the year title, um, man, they just show up and show out and they're such neat people, but they, they, they travel, they'll, they'll travel, whatever, 22 hours, 24 hours to come see him. And they follow him around the lake. They, you know, they ping his cell phone. So they always know where he's (laughs) at on the water and they'll just crawl out of the woods and be standing on the shoreline. (laughs) That's awesome. It's really cool. But yeah, back to what you said about it. He's first of all, Brandon is a very, very driven individual. A lot of people don't know this, but he's actually a two time state champion high school wrestler. And I didn't you guys, know that. Yeah. So if you know any wrestlers or if you are you were a former wrestler, you know those cats are wired just a little bit different. Unfortunately and, we do know one a little yes. too well, actually. <laughs> the missing <laughs> member of the group yeah. today. <laughs> So that kind of tells you what, how he's wired from the get-go. And it's funny because when you're around him, he's really, really laid back. He, he's, he's kind of a flatliner emotionally. He doesn't ever get crazy wired up. You know, he's, when you talk to Brandon, he's always very, very even keel no matter what's going on. But, but the reality of it is he is a, he's a very driven cat. And I've been around the sport long enough, you know, that I, I had a personal relationship with guys like Ken Cook and Gary Klein. Th- those were kind of my mentors and fishing heroes. And I see a lot of I see a lot of the Ken Cook, Gary Klein mindset in Brandon, even though, you know, he's obviously significantly younger than those guys. Yeah. He's got a little bit of an old soul with that young drive. You know, he's the kind of guy that I know you guys will appreciate this. He enjoys being off the grid in the off season and, and, and yeah. climbing mountains like to kill elk. Oh right? yeah. So he's he's just a special cat, but yeah, he was smart enough be one of the early adopters of social media period whether it was yeah. instagram certainly youtube and and kudos to him man what a lot of people don't realize is he invested in that in the truest sense of the word real money and what i mean by that is 
he was one of the first to figure out, hey, I, I can't generate, here we use this word again, I can't generate great fresh content and catch fish all at the same time. Like I've got to go pay somebody, pay somebody real money to come film all this. So he, he hired a guy named Kyle. Kyle is a wonderful dude. He is just a cool cat. He lives most of the summer on a sailboat up there in Idaho. He'll twist off in the off season and go visit foreign countries by himself. He's just a neat dude, funny, um, humble, and insanely talented as a videographer and editor. So Kyle travels with Brandon and Tiffany. Tiffany's Brandon's wife, obviously, and literally lives with them on the road. I mean, they they have a big fifth wheel and they live together like college kids, right? <laughs> and awesome. Kyle is nonstop. This is, man, I, I wish, I hope I'm illustrating this the way that it really is. When I say nonstop, shooting content all the time. I mean, he's shooting content in the pre-dawn at 5.30 in the morning. He's shooting content at every weigh-in. He's a fixture out here, kind of like myself and this other band of gypsies. I mean, he's everywhere <laughs> we go. And um, and that results, and then he takes it back, you know, after supper, and he edits half the night. Yeah. yeah. So So his work ethic, and his skill level for what he does is kind of on par with Brandon and, and what, what he does. And it's led to tremendously quality content that you're, that you're referencing and bragging on deservedly. So, and Scott Martin does the same thing. Um, it's one of those deals. You can't be jealous of those guys. You can't be hateful about it because they're putting in the work. Scott Martin has, I think he's got two or three people out here that oh, follow yeah. him around. When I say follow, I mean, they stay in the same rental house or hotel, and I mean they're capturing him drinking coffee in the morning. <laughs> yeah, on base, you know, and that's that's something we never saw out here ten years ago. No, no, that's what's Brandon crazy about. Bonnet, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, Brandon was definitely Brandon and Scott were definitely the early adopters of that. Oh yeah, and Scott was kind of a rare case coming from the FLW. I mean, obviously, dudes that are like really into fishing know about the FLW, but. You know, most guys probably couldn't name you 10 guys in the FLW right now, but everybody that falls, you know, at least the Bass Elite guys or the MLF guys knew about Scott Martin before he kind of made the jump because of that, because he was just right. everywhere. Like he was on everything, everywhere, you know, all the time, not even doing like serious fishing videos. Like he had a boat. He's like, hey, check out my sound system I just put in my boat, you know, just right. anything, honestly, like you said, life, just life follow him everywhere. Yeah. And that was kind of cool. And that was, I mean, I guess like not to bring up the Guggen squad either, but like those kids kind of did the same thing, you know, with that whole, I, I guess not revolution wouldn't be the right word to use, but kind of that like. Oh, it really was. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, they kind of just did the same, same thing more or less now. It's like kind of just like, hey, this is what I do today. Or, yeah, you know, people want to watch that shit. Bringing in that influx of like actual influencers to yeah. get that brand recognition out there. Yeah. Yep. But. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. Cause I mean, we're all millennials. So like our generation, like my earliest memories of like, you know, I guess more professional fishing was, you know, watching Bill dance on Sundays <laughs> with my dad. But I, I remember in high school when Mike Iconelli won his first classic and they had him on the sports center top 10 when he caught that last fish and was just like going ballistic on his boat deck. And I was like, holy shit, there's pro fishing. Like yeah. I remember that, like being like, I don't know, I was like 12 or 13, maybe something like that. Yeah. yeah 2003. Yeah. I'm like, this is pretty wild. I'm like, oh, it's on sports center. I catch bass. That's cool. You know, like, and I remember like 
it evolving, you know, over the last couple of years, like them having the live streams of the elite events, like that was cool as hell being able to just get on my phone and watch it. And it kind of made it more for the people. You know what I mean? You don't have to pay nothing to watch those on on their website or anything like that. I think that's really awesome. It is. It is. And I'm, as long as I've been in this, man, I'm still addicted to that kind of stuff, just like you guys. And, you know, my, my girlfriend is an elementary school principal, and she, she's got Bassmaster Live running on her desk while she's trying to run an elementary school. <laughs> you know? And I, I love that, man. And and she was totally new to the sport when we started dating a year and a half ago. And I that is such the magic of our sport is seeing somebody like her, you know, a, a female elementary school principal that was not into our sport okay her son fished some tournaments but you know it was kind of a passive deal and um and yet here she is a year and a half later with Bassmaster Live running non-stop on her desk <laughs> at school and and really has a legit um passion for fishing with me and she's completely amateur you know at this point I mean she you know she just but she loves it and that's the magic of our sport. You expose somebody to it correctly, and it does. It has a magnetic quality about it, man. And whether that's watching Bassmaster Live, you're not participating, you're watching, or you really adopt a love for going out there on Saturday morning and trying to catch one. And I, I just I love seeing the evolution in somebody like her that came from not knowing it, wasn't on her radar, was not a part of her life, where now she's consuming content or participating a significant portion of her week every, every week. Yeah. I saw you posted a picture of her catching a fish a couple of days ago or maybe a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I said she caught her first two bass of her life wow. last, last, what the, yeah, last, I, don't, I lost her two Sundays ago. Yeah. Before I left them up here. Anyhow, I said the first one was tiny that day. And the second one was the size of a first grader. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and more than I can say for myself un- lately. She came unspooled, fellas. Trust me. And that was so cool to watch that. That's the stuff you cannot fake, right? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's born into us. It's primal. Some of us have it. Some of us really don't or, or we don't care. And then there's people like us that we. it's just part of our DNA. And she's discovering in the middle of her life um that she's got that too you know and didn't even realize it really because no one had ever really exposed her to it or, or invited her to truly participate you know yeah our buddy seaburn always says that he he absolutely loves it when uh booer here catches a fish because that look <laughs> on his face is absolutely it's the first priceless. fish face every time every single time he catches a fish it's that first fish face and it's it's I phenomenal it. yeah you got to have that passion that love for it but you, you mentioned something pretty interesting I wanted to touch on as well, because you talked about having that first good experience whenever you're getting somebody into the sport of fishing. You know, from your perspective, somebody that may want to get, you know, a significant other or a friend or family into fishing the right way, do you have a suggestion on how they can go about, you know, making that experience good for them, whether it's using live bait or you know, lures or whatever it is. I mean, wh- what do you think is the easiest way to kind of dip your toes in and get people interested in it? Well, I think there's two two guiding lights to that. I think simplicity and success. So simplicity is don't try to take them out there to, to you know, flip bushes, flooded bushes with a three and a half inch. <laughs> like, 
that's next level stuff that yeah. Chuck and people that have been doing this for don't that's that's not how you do it right that's not simple that's very technical that takes years of practice so simplicity you know obviously common sense yeah could be live bait under a bobber could be a spinning reel and just casting around a three and a half inch swim bait or something simple like a lipless crankbait a rattle trap simplicity it's not about it's not about uh, trying to fish like Brandon Polinick on the first outing, right? Because they said there is a skill set involved in our sport, and and people that are new to it, I don't think they realize how much skill is involved. You know, for those of us that are hardcore avid, so simplicity. You know, spinning reels are are a great way to go. I I don't know that I'm a huge fan of starting people on with spin cast stuff. Like a, it, spin cast is great for kids, right? Because it eliminates a lot of messes. I'm talking push button, Zepco's, mm-hmm. yeah. like, obviously an iconic place in our sport, but I'm not sure that I like starting adults there because, here's why, because that kind of that kind of tackle, those rods and reels, let's be honest, are pretty limiting in what you can do. So I like, in the case of Sherry, my girlfriend, I've started her with spinning tackle, you know, open face stuff, because she can do a lot of stuff with that and, and grow quicker with her techniques than she could if I just handed her a Zebco rod and reel. And, and then I feel like I'd be limiting her ability to grow in the sport. So kids, you can't argue with a, with a Zebco push button reel and live bait under a bobber. But I think if you're introducing an adult to the sport, I think spinning tackle is a great way to go, but keep it simple. It's lures they can cast like a quarter ounce rattle trap or Sherry caught her big one on a DT six crankbait because spinning tackle can handle that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then success. The second part of that equation, if you really want to be successful at, at getting somebody into the sport and have growing their love for the sport, they have to be successful. And so well, how do you help a beginner succeed? Well, you got to put them around fish they can catch, right? So I took Sherry to a small body of water, for example, that is frankly overcrowded with bass in an unhealthy way. We're getting yeah. into my fisheries here. It's got too many fish in it. It's got too many hungry mouths and not near enough groceries, if you will. Yeah. But the good news is they, they bite, right? They're fairly easy to catch because they're hungry. Oh, they're super aggressive. Yeah, super aggressive. Excuse me. So put them around fish that you know they can catch, whether that's in an overcrowded farm pond or, you you know, you live in my part of the world and you've got, you've got white bass that are, that are schooling in the springtime and they're easy to catch. Or maybe you're just catching panfish, but make sure beginning anglers don't care about they're they're not generally setting out to catch a nine pound largemouth or a five pound smallmouth or a trophy, right? They just want to be successful. They just want to catch something. And so those are the two key pieces of advice I have for those of us that are in the sport and want to successfully introduce somebody else. That's keep it simple, tackle technique, and then focus on making sure they're successful and all that successful really equates to is getting a bite catching fish and it doesn't have to be it shouldn't be trophy fish on the first second or third outing oh without a doubt i mean just feeling the tug on the line the first time you're like holy shit it worked like (laughs) just seeing that look on people's faces like this thing works you know yeah and 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 it can be something as simple as fishing for carp off the bank you take a beginning angler and they catch a 25 inch carp Oh, that'll get them jacked up. Oh, I'll get anybody yeah. jacked Absolutely. up. So much fun. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it's certainly not flipping flooded bushes in the springtime, you know? Man, you can almost tell that you grew up in Western Pennsylvania because everything that you're mentioning is my childhood growing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's yeah, sick sure. to relate that with the carp and, and just catching fish early on with bobber. And, you know, we always were on spinning tackle, but, you know, since I've, I've had to grow up and fish more often because these guys like fishing a lot more than I do, you know, I've, I've gone to more of a, a bait cast system and whatnot, but learning that was a whole new endeavor in, in itself. And, a lot of guys around here, you know, especially family of mine that grew up on that spin, it, they just can't get away from it. And I, I wonder how you would think it, like a good kind of transition away from that to get them to use those bait casters and trust them. Because I know that process for me, I almost threw it in the, the lake a couple times when I first started. But now you yeah. won't go back though. No, I mean, yeah. now that's the, that's yeah. the thing. Once, Once you finally hit that point, done. it's like, well, this is superior in just about every way, other than if you're throwing something finesse or smaller, obviously you want the spin tap. Yeah. It, it's... No, your, your question's a real one. And, and that's one of the bigger challenges, I think, in bass fishing is learning conventional reels, bait casting reels. It's not easy, period. It's not. It takes practice. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it, it just has to become a mindset. And that mindset is born out of the fact that, hey, these are tools. They're, these are tools. And it's like I've told my dad several times on his visits to Oklahoma. You know, by my nature, guys, I'm a shallow water guy. I, I, my favorite way to catch a bass is pitching to visible flooded habitat, whether that's lay down trees or that's flooded bushes or that's my deal. Well, my dad is limited in that he, he, can't, he can't pitch. He can't, he's never learned the art of an underhanded pitch to close targets. Yeah. And so, but he throws a bait cast really well. He does very well if I hand him a chatter bait or a rattle trap or something that a spinner bait, something that he can just make an overhand cast with. So I think it's one of those deals. Like, and it'll become this with with my girl Sherry. At some point, she's either going to have to make up her mind that oh, I want to I want to fish like duck fishes and 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 have all those techniques in my arsenal, or I'm not. I don't care that much to learn all that because. It's like anything else in this life, whether you're playing golf or an archery hunter or whatever, you have to put the time in to learn all the techniques. If you're a golfer to learn all the clubs. If you're an archery hunter, obviously you got to shoot often and practice a lot, right? In our sports, no different. If you want to be advanced in, in the sport and you want to be able to use all the tools that are available to us, you have to learn how to use a bait caster. How do you learn how to use a bait caster? Time and effort and a lot of practice. I can remember standing in my third floor apartment in Norman, Oklahoma as a grad student. And at that point, I was I was pretty entrenched in some high-level tournaments as well as working on my master's. I was fishing Redman tournaments against the best guys in the state the region. A lot of those guys, some of those guys went on to be full-time pros. Jason Christie, <laughs> excuse me, but Edwin Evers was another one that took a lot of my money back then. But um, <laughs> I can remember standing on, in the third floor apartment at, at the University of Oklahoma and pitching from the kitchen out into the living room to a small cup as my target, you know, and just wearing my roommate out like, what a weirdo, right? Yeah. <laughs> my, my idea was I can't ever be good enough at this. I got to practice because I, at that point, you know, I, my life obviously had moved across the country from western Pennsylvania to Norman. I was saturated in not only my education at that point, but also in pretty high-level tournament fishing. And I knew that... When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. 
Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard. And Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. If I was going to beat those guys, I had to be equally as good as they were technique-wise. And so I practiced, as goofy as that sounds, I, I pitched and I pitched and I practiced pitching with a bait casting rod and reel inside an apartment to where I could literally hit that small target every time. And to this day, that is a technique that I utilize just about every time I'm on the water. The, the pitch, it's funny you say that, is like probably one of the most underrated, more difficult it doesn't sound difficult. You're throwing 10 to 15 feet, if that, but like anybody can bomb cast, you know, 50 yards or whatever yeah. it is, but you give them that seven, three rod and you're like, all right, hit that bush eight feet over there. Yeah. It's all, all about efficiency and accuracy at that yeah, point. You know, it, it's like just out of that flipping range, you know, and you kind of got to make it like I struggle sometimes too. And I've been using a bait caster since I was in like, I think eight or nine years old. And I mean, back mm-hmm. then they were a lot less forgiving than they are now. <laughs> so, right. And, and that's what's funny too is like if I gave anybody my like Sabelli's pretty good with a bait caster at this point. If I gave him my rod and reel, he wouldn't be able to use it because I have everything turned turned off completely because that's how I grew yep. up using you know round reels and you know old school tackle that didn't have brakes, didn't have anything. You know, it was all your thumb. And yep. like the new ones now, like I can tell when it's turned up even a little bit. I'm like I'm missing like five feet off my cast when I throw that. Like I can tell like when it's not yep. you know to my stuff, but. Even still now, you get me in that 10 to 15 range, and I would say my accuracy is like 80%, and I've been doing it for a pretty damn long time. <laughs> yeah, so bait casting reels are, I mean, they're parallel to archery hunting. One, one minuscule adjustment, right, changes everything. Yes. People need, that are listening need to know that. Um, you know, most of every bait casting reel features three primary adjustments. You know, you've got your, your star drag that, that determines how easily a fish can pull line away from your reel so you got your drag and then you've got generally a fine adjustment knob and you've got your your larger adjustment right your external cast control so all those things i don't want to scare anybody but just so people are aware <laughs> you have to learn to utilize all that that it's like learning how to use a, a bow if you're going to start archery hunting you you need to know what every adjustment um results in and and bait casting reels are highly, highly engineered products. I mean, I've represented quantum rods and reels for nine years, and I worked hand in hand with their engineers. They were engineers. They weren't pro fishermen. Yeah. They were college educated engineers designing bait casting reels. So it's a it's a fine piece of equipment. And if you're gonna be good with one, you have to have the patience. Don't go into it with a bad attitude that oh, I'm just gonna have a bunch of backlashes. <laughs> Well, you may, but if you want to learn how to use that tool, you'll learn how to use that tool, right? And you'll learn what every one of those knobs does and how it affects your cast and your drag. And, you know, and I make those adjustments every day I'm on the water. Just It's not oh, like yeah. after all these years, I've just got one setting and I ride that all year. No, yeah, it's all situational. 
Oh yeah, especially for guys like us that like you know don't have a, a boat that can hold you know twenty rods or the money to buy twenty different setups. You know, if you're putting on, yeah. you know, if you're going from a jig to you know a hard bait or something like that, I mean, you do have to adjust your reel a little bit. Yeah, and and I would say, and that's a that's a great segue into, into another point. I would I would offer is you really we all have to save up and buy our first rod and reel right but really as you become more avid in the sport i don't mean a hardcore tournament guy but i mean somebody that's going somewhat frequently i tell people all the time and here i go with this golf reference again but you can't play around a golf with one club right and no. fishing fast fast fishing especially is the same way people that know nothing about the sport walk into my garage and, and look at the front deck of my ranger or they see all the rods in the corn <laughs> they think like, we're complete degenerates <laughs> yeah, they're like, get lightheaded. Oh god dude i've never seen so many rods yeah. in my life i'm like well that's it's what i do right that's yeah. who i am and the point is i utilize every one of those rods and reels throughout most of my days on the water now ideally you get on one bike you can ride that combo that lure that pattern all day that's what we all that's what we what we all strive for. Yeah. But in putting the pieces of the bass fishing puzzle together, it takes more than one rod and reel. And so I would tell people, yeah, save up and get your first one. But the ugly reality of it is, there's really not a rod and reel that does every single thing in our sport. No. It just doesn't really exist. We can get close, but it's less than ideal. So I tell people, you really need to to expect to at least be able to try to acquire two at a minimum, but ideally three rod and reel combos to really get into the game because there's just too many techniques that are productive, proven, and successful. And unfortunately, unfortunately, they don't all pair well with one rod and reel. It takes at least two, typically three, whatever, maybe four if you're a real idiot like me 14 of them <laughs> <laughs> i'm not far behind you my friend <laughs> yeah yeah but people that those are just the realities i don't like to kid people on oh yeah you know i'll pick you out one rod and reel and you'll be good to go now, well you will for a while with certain techniques but if you really want to learn the sport it's kind of like where sherry's at right now like she can do certain things with a spinning rod and do a lot of things with it actually and be successful but there will come a time soon when I guarantee you this is going to happen because she fishes with me so much. She's going to say, babe, I want you to teach me how to pitch. Well, here we go. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, and I hope that day comes, but I'm just, I'm just trying to illustrate that as all of us evolve in the sport, we have to learn the techniques. We have to learn all the, all the different reels out there in the sport and we have to learn what to pair with each. I'll give you an example of that. One of my best friends, most treasured friends in the world is a, is a record label executive in, in Nashville and just a, a neat guy, just kind of a godsend to my life. It's crazy how similar his life and mine are. He grew up in Kentucky, but um, he's he, he is in country music for a living, works with people very closely like Chris Stapleton, and yet loves the outdoors, loves to fish and hunt. And I'm much the same but opposite. I make my living in fishing and have an absolute passion for country music i'm a lyrics junkie i need to know who wrote the song who co-wrote the song anyhow he and i formed a friendship and he called me on the phone oh i guess it's been six weeks ago and he's got a teenage boy football player big kid but he loves to hunt fish with his dad and he said brother i need your advice and i said all right anything what do you need he's like we're out here on the porch and we got all of our rods and reels laid out and i'm gonna read you the models and you tell us what lure we need to 
be fishing with that model, that rod, that reel. What lure does that rod and reel get? What lure does that rod oh, get? Man. <laughs> and dude, I love that, right? Because number one, at least he's wise enough to realize these are tools. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then it was cool that he called out, called on me, you know, to help him learn how to use those tools. And that's yeah. kind of like that's what I wish more people would do is is realize, hey, I there's a little bit of a science to this, and I need to understand that science if I want to be successful. Are you available for like 15 minutes after this call? <laughs> uh, I'm going to run out to the yeah, garage. Go get the arsenal. On the line with wow. you. <laughs> because I, in all in all reality, in all honesty, this is the part of fishing where I struggle the most is knowing, okay, where do I even find the resources to realize like what do I do with this combination compared to this combination compared to this combination because I have five different rods and real combos out there. And to be honest, I just grab whichever ones I like the best and I go fishing. <laughs> and <laughs> and this I is throw, why I don't bring him with me and, most of the time. No, I, I, and I throw I everything you, on anything and it just shake our heads matter, more, right? <laughs> so, I mean, really, where are the resources? Where can I go and say, okay, I know that there are better uses for each one of these rod and reel combos. Where do I go to find you know, a, a guck to help me figure you out what I literally have my phone number. Yeah, but I'm saying yeah, without, well. <laughs> without like you involved, without, if I really want to go and do this on my own. Yeah, if you don't, if you don't have a great mentor. And honestly, I really didn't myself. You know, my dad took me fishing. We fished for carp on the banks of the Beaver River where it drains into the Ohio down there around New Brighton. Some and big Rockton. old flatheads down there too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but my dad, my dad is not a, knowledgeable skilled angler he loves to go but so i didn't have a mentor so where where does a guy like me a kid like me find that information exactly and this is really welcome welcome to the world that i work in right so i you know i, I think unfortunately there's a lot of a cynical perspective that that these pros are always trying to sell you something well in part that's their job they're, they're help they're they, they pay their light bill with sponsors. So, of course, they're going to talk about those products. But but the, the reality, the good news is these guys are the best in the world at what they do. So if I wanted to, if I wanted to find the perfect drop shot rod and reel, I would probably start Googling somebody's name like Brandon Polinick. And somewhere out there, he's going to tell you exactly what he fishes a drop shot on. Absolutely. He's going to tell you. Yeah. He's not going to tell you the brand, right? He's not going to say, I use a Daiwa spinning reel. He's going to give you the exact model of that reel. He's going to give you somewhere out there. He's going to, in an interview in, on the Googler, he's mentioned exactly <laughs> the, the exact rod model that he uses for drop shotting, right? So that's the answer to your question. If you don't have a mentor, a duck in your life, or a dad that's an avid angler, whatever, man, you take advantage of, of Google and start whatever technique it is, you know, if, if I was, obviously, if I was wanting to become proficient with deep crankbait, you know, I, I would probably right now Google Brandon Lester deep cranking, certainly legendary David, David Fritz. Yeah. Guys who do that stuff a lot are talking out there in stories with guys like me about exactly what they use. I remember doing that as a kid. I, now, we didn't have, God, this sounds cool. We didn't have the first <laughs> internet. We didn't have the internet when I was a kid, boys. But anyhow, I mean, really, we sort of didn't either. Yeah, to it be was, completely fair. We we kind of were the test subjects of this we whole were that social transition going on. Yeah, yeah. So, but I remember, like, I can remember looking to Danny Brower in Dialwood back then would run ads with the exact reel and rod model that Danny flipped with, or yeah. 
Gary Klein in what, what rod and reel he threw crankbaits on or whatever it was. And then as a kid, I remember going, that's the exact reel I want to save up for and buy. Yeah. And I think, I think it's the same today. Uh, the, the only thing that's better or different is you've got a lot more information out there at your fingertips. Oh, an insane amount of information. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of a, a double-edged sword. I, I know I said that earlier too, but like if a guy like say in your region is talking about fishing, you know, a uh, hard bottom lake out there. Like, yeah. In this situation, I would blah, 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 blah. Well, over here in Western PA, just about everything's soft, silty bottom, you know, man-made reservoir, you know, and it's kind of a easy way to get frustrated because I remember being younger and, you know, watching Kevin Van Dam throwing a freaking jerk bait. It's like, I'm going to throw yep. a jerk bait everywhere because he catches fish. Well, don't work like that either too, you know, in a situational, I guess, level. Right. No, there's not, there's not one lure and it doesn't work everywhere, but, and you know, this is crazy, but the cool thing about the guys who are the best in the world in our sport is in social media, you could literally private message probably 50 out of a hundred of these guys and they would literally respond to you one-on-one. I think I literally, I would feel in good faith in saying you could send 50 out of a hundred of these guys, a kid could, and say, could you please tell me the exact model of the rod and reel that you use for drop shots or you use for chatterbaits? Pick a pro. If they're good enough to fish the Elite Series, for example, or the Bass Pro Tour with MLF, they're certainly qualified to give you a good answer, an, edu- an educated answer. And the vast majority of these cats, at least half of them, would literally answer anybody that's seeking that information directly. You couldn't do that when I was a kid. No, there was no. no way to contact Gary Klein or Ken Cook directly. You know what I mean? But you can now. I mean, that's how we got a hold of you. Is on. Well, I got a hold of you. Is on Instagram. Exactly. Didn't know you from Adam, and here we are. And yeah. that's really that's really cool, man. It it, it really kind of is. And then find out you're a, a lost Western PA boy too. On top of that. Yeah. Yep. For 30 years, I've been trying to figure out how I got to Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something, I guess, kind of in the same vein you mentioned yesterday when we talked on the phone is you, you went to a couple weeks ago, I think it was, you went to this lake that you'd never been to before. You did some research. You went out there and you did well. And that's, I think, in the evolution, at least for, you know, amateurs like us that, you know, my, my new thing has been going to new places or crossing different species, not just bass off the list of things I haven't caught. And I was on this mission to catch a bowfin this year and I found this body of water, did research and then, you know, adjusted out there like, oh, they don't yep. like this. Or they have very good eyes. I should be using fluorocarbon or things like that. The the little sciencey kind of real game planny aspects of it really interest me now more than it did before. Like, it's not just catching the fish. It's like going to this new place completely. We simply call that figuring them out. Yes. Yes. And that's, I think, kind of the. The evolution. It's the, the natural evolution, I right. feel like. And that's the the challenge I've been really enjoying over the last couple of years is going to new fisheries and things like yep. that and, you know, learning them. Learning, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else in the outdoors. You you start in one level and if you're really passionate about it and you love it, you just continue to strive to go to the next level and the next level, whatever that is for you. But everybody kind of finds what's their route or their path throughout the sport, whether it's just me that I just want to go out and catch big bass. That's what I'm going to do. But, uh, you know, Boer has a whole different mindset that now all of a sudden it just comes to them. Well, you know what? I want to go chase species. And it's the same, whether you're hunting deer, turkey, whatever you're doing in life. It, it seems like everybody progresses differently. 
yeah, we start off. We just want to go. We just want to see a deer. Then we want to. Then we want to shoot our first deer. Yeah, yeah. Then it's somewhere in we 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 we. I don't want to call it say trophy hunters, but but we evolve, as you yeah. just said, and 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 then as we decide that we want to shoot a trophy buck, with that comes the realization that oh, trophy bucks are wired a little different than that average mm-hmm. year and a half, two and a half year old, right? Yeah, oh yeah. And so then that becomes. You start you start living with that particular deer. Where where does when does he get up in the morning and where does he go eat? When does he return from eating? Where does he bed? And then that starts the science of the sport. That's the figuring them out part of deer hunting, right? In which you're doing the work. You're putting in the research. You're doing your homework. You're thinking about it. You're go ahead. You're slightly obsessed. But the obsession's that, the that, word. Yeah, you slip yeah. into obsession. Yeah, you healthily, slip into obsession. Hopefully. Sometimes not and, so healthy. Um, no. <laughs> I think it is, man. I, I think I think you know why I think it's it's healthy as long as you're not, not like wrecking your marriage and your job and all that. Obviously, right. right. Um, I think it's good to have passion in this life. I I love being surrounded by people who love what they do. You know, I mentioned my buddy in the music business in Nashville. That guy loves lyrics and he loves music and he loves artists like like we love the outdoors. And I I love being around people that are passionate. And if your passion is trying to kill a, a trophy deer, I, I admire that. I think it's cool, you know, and, and you're right. There is an absolute evolution that takes place among us as outdoorsmen. Most of us, not all of us, but that strive to experience new things, experience new lakes, kill a big, bigger deer, whatever it is. And I, I, I love and embrace that process. I've been, I've, I've been bass fishing now. This is hard to believe, but a little over 30 years, more like 35 years. And yet, Two weeks ago, as you referenced, I figured out a lake not far from my home in Oklahoma that I had never seen before and did well, as you said. Man, what that's that's the ultimate reward. I mean, I was jacked, you know? That never gets old. That never gets old. But but that all started with a lot of map study and a lot of Google Earth study and finding channel swings and and, and then the day I got on the water looking at my sonar immediately and determining how deep thermocline was and that i mean that's that's next level stuff right but that's what i do it's what i love to do and that's what i'm happy to share with other people that want to learn the sport yeah i mean in reality it's it's almost a slap in the face to someone that when you talk about fishing and you talk about the skill set of fishing and and someone might tell you well i can just throw a minnow on the bobber and catch just as many bass or just as big a bass as you can and that that comment in itself is like you're missing the point. You're really missing the point. I mean, the point here is that as I progress and want to do better things with fishing and get better at fishing, there really comes a entire new study, like you're saying, with maps and channels and all of this thing that, you know, me and more as a hunter, I've done this with wind and different things, figure out deer, but I've never taken fishing to that level. And, right. and in reality, Maybe a lot of people don't even realize that you can, that you can go into a point where you actually can study maps and figure out where you're going to catch fish the night before at new places. And those experiences is what drives you for that passion and really enjoyment out of anything that you do. You know, whether it's us traveling to Oklahoma to hunt turkey two years ago because it's something totally yeah. different, totally different species of turkey. And, you know, it's it's something that we do because we love this, but in the same sense that new challenge and trying to figure out something totally different than what you're used to and getting out of that comfort zone is what I I love and and bringing that back to fishing you know there's a lot for me to be to learn and to experience but 
at in the same sense, you know, uh, these guys are obviously going to keep kicking me in the ass until I do it, but I'm starting <laughs> I'm starting yes. to enjoy it, you know. I I came from someone like you said fishing carp off the bank or, you know, fish and uh maybe bass or whatever off a of live bait and then the progression to lures. Now I'm kayak fishing. It's just, you know, and it came from a simple kayak bass fishing tournament that I joined for fun with friends, other podcasters. And you know, that's brought me above and beyond in, in this sport. And it's, it's really, it's actually really enjoyable as much as it hates. I hate to say it. <laughs> it hurts. We got me. him. I don't need another all in passion. Got you, you know? right where we want you. <laughs> yeah. No, the, it's the kayak segment of the outdoors is arguably the fastest growing segment of all outdoors. I mean, oh, when yeah. you look, get down to the nitty gritty and start looking at, excuse me, where are sales taking place in the outdoor industry? Kayaks and everything related to kayaks has just been an explosive trend the last, whatever, 10, 12 years. And it, it's cool. It's cool because I believe as somebody who's been blessed to make a living in this sport, I believe we talked about getting people into the sport. I believe that the whole kayaking movement has brought people into fishing that may otherwise have never got into our sport. And yeah. that's, that's a good thing. Oh, I agree. Ike and Ellie actually did quite a big service to the kayak industry, especially with his videos in his, yep. Uh, yep. his, I guess it's on his property, that pond he has when he brings his kids back there and their Hobies and they just like are crushing pickerel back there in yeah. the middle of winter. Yep. You know, I, I remember, what was that five, six years ago, probably when that really yeah kicked in with him. And then, you know, the next thing you know, everybody had to have a Hobie kayak. Yeah. Edwin Evers has been doing something similar yeah. too on his channel. Yeah. He's a cool dude too. We should try to get him on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should, man. He lives about 20 miles from me. Oh, no kidding. Nice. Yeah. One, one of our buddies that we're friends with on social media knows him personally. Uh, he's from Alabama though. I think they fish together or their dads know each other somehow or there's some strange connection, but Edwin Evers has popped up a few times over the years. It's kind of Target a sign. acquired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It never, people are good people in this business. Thank God. And it never hurts. You know, you guys doing this podcast, man, I, I wouldn't ever be embarrassed or afraid to at least reach out to people that you want on. I mean, most of them, if they can make it fit their schedule, the biggest challenge you face in getting professional anglers on is the travel. Oh yeah. Um, you know, these guys are committed. Well, like right now, they're on a two-week run. Matt Airy won't even see his family for, I think he said, 18 days. Jeez. You know, but so sometimes it's intense in terms of travel and time and dark to dark on the water. But yeah, I mean, a little bit of industry wisdom. Don't ever be embarrassed or afraid to reach out. To, if a guy doesn't respond to you, he doesn't respond to you. But there's yeah so many good people in this business that, that you can reach out to and ask to be on for sure. Don't Don't hesitate on that would be my wisdom there. Oh, we've definitely learned that our, I guess, half of the podcast has not been around as long as Chucky, but I mean, he's, he's wrangled some big fish in his own right, so to speak. Where did you guys turkey hunt in Oklahoma? Uh, near Enid. Yeah. Is it? How do yeah. you say it? Yeah. Enid. Uh, yeah. We, we were up there uh, at a buddy of ours, good old Matt Garris on out on a limb. Uh, he owns a company up that way where he does tree stands and, and whatnot. And Basically, just for me bumping into him a couple of times at different shows and reaching out to him, he invited us in. We stayed at his place. I mean, it was it was incredible. We all shot birds. It was unbelievable, man. What a beautiful awesome. country! You can drive an hour and be in two different worlds, two different continents. Yeah, it's unreal out there. Yeah, 
Unreal. Yeah, I don't. I haven't spent a lot of time in, in that part of the state. That would be considered north central Oklahoma. But correct. Yeah, we are definitely a bit of a sportsman's paradise, man. Um, it's you know we we've made mention now several times of me growing up in Western Pennsylvania and lived my whole adult adult life in Oklahoma. I, I will say that it is man, it, it's it's vastly different in Oklahoma as far as accessibility and you know we we, we just have a lot of freedoms there as sportsmen uh, and, and as well as resources. I mean, if you're a bass fisherman. My goodness, the entire eastern two-thirds of the state is there's just great fishing waters everywhere. Whether it's a 100-acre city lake that's a water supply lake that we're allowed to fish in or a 100,000-acre reservoir like Texoma or, or Eufaula or 50,000-acre Grand Lake or Cherokee. We got, and, and hunting, too. I mean, same yeah. deal as you guys were fortunate enough to experience. I mean, statewide, phenomenal hunting opportunities. I think we're a real – I'm not going to – even pretend to be an expert whitetail guy here, but I, <laughs> there's some I big do deer down there. <laughs> we're probably we're probably one of the true quote unquote sleeper states when it comes to quality whitetails right now. Yeah, and there's a lot of people out there right now that are making uh, Oklahoma less of a sleeper state. That is, yeah, they're just shooting absolute giant giant deer, and it's unbelievable. But I almost wonder if uh, that whole choosing between Oklahoma or Alabama, if there was any bass fishing that uh, played a role in that choice in your life or, if, you know, because I'm pretty sure bass fishing in Oklahoma is not too too shabby. No, that's a great question. You're, you're referring to when I was mm-hmm. signing where to go get my master's. Correct. Um, or was it Louisiana? Sorry. Auburn. No, Auburn. no, it was, it was, it was Auburn. Oh, okay. yeah. Auburn and Auburn is located in southeastern Alabama. Um, no, the fishing really wasn't, to be honest with you. I, that, to be frank about it, that, that was a can't lose situation, right? If I had been judge facing the yeah. decision on, on fishing, right. either one would have been phenomenal. In fact, I compare those two states a bunch as being so similar. And if you track my my work related travel and my tournament coverage over the last sixteen years, I don't think there's any doubt that Alabama is the state I've spent the most nights in, other than my own my own state. But no, the, the fishing didn't play a part in deciding where to go to grad school. To be real frank about it, man, it at that point, you're just, I was just wanting the, the school to accept me and let me in because that's part of the process. You know, it's, you got to have the GPA and you got to have the, um, you got to have the entrance exam scores and uh, academia is stressful. So at that point, man, I just, I just wanted somebody to say, yeah, we want you here. I mean, you're really just looking for an invitation. Right. right. No, for sure. Somebody wants to guide your research. So. Oh, talk sure. about, we'll talk about that. For, I'll talk about that for five minutes. That's kind of cool stuff, man. <laughs> uh, so my master's research, I studied brush piles. You're like, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, really? Yeah, we were, the state, this is cool stuff. The state was, you'll get me on this fisheries avenue. We'll go another <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Is, Lock them in. <laughs> yeah. Um, the state realized that a lot of the reservoirs they had built, obviously, in the 50s and, and 1960s, you know, reservoirs age pretty quickly. Um, when you build a new reservoir, a new first of all, a reservoir is defined as, as a body of water in which man came in and built a dam. Lakes occur technically naturally, okay, in case people are wondering, because I've answered that question many times. What's the difference between a lake and a reservoir? <laughs> so anyhow, a lot of reservoirs, especially in the South, were built in the 50s and 60s, some in the 40s. And when a reservoir ages over time, a lot of the habitat, all the bushes on the shoreline, the standing timber that was there when they when they first built the dam and flooded an area, 
it decays and goes away and you lose a lot of habitat. So when I was in graduate school um, in the mid late nineties, the state of Oklahoma realized fisheries division realized that we really need to start working on habitat because we've lost a lot of the natural flooded habitat in our lakes. Only where bass live, some cases where small fingerlings, you know, go for nursery cover to grow up and be bigger bass. So they wanted to know what kind of habitat should we be sinking in these lakes essentially. So I studied, I did, I had four different study areas. I would, I would do what we call lay down trees where we literally cut a tree on the shoreline, let it fall, the canopy of the tree fall into the water. We would cable it off so it wouldn't go anywhere. So we had lay down trees and then we had Christmas trees. But these Christmas tree people that come in from Michigan to sell Christmas trees in Oklahoma and what they don't sell, they look for a way to get rid of cheap. So we would take all these Christmas trees and we would sink those. And then lastly, we would have hardwood piles, whether that was like a sycamore tree or an oak tree, certainly. Those were our hardwood piles. Fourthly, we would use control sites. What do you mean a control site? Well, we would identify just random places on the lake where we would sample. How did you sample? Well, the way we sampled was with an electrofishing boat. Okay. So, nice. yeah, we would. We've we seen had those all around. These, those are wild. Yeah, they are. We had habitat sites on two different reservoirs. One was a shallow, muddy reservoir. The other one was sort of a almost a mountainous reservoir that was steep, deep, and clear. And we had these different habitat types and locations on these two different reservoirs. And we would go out right after the sunset into the darkness as fish theoretically are moving shallower. And we would shock all these sites. We would electrofish all these sites. And what we determined in my study was that the habitat that held the most fish were the old Christmas trees. Okay, fish, just the most fish. I didn't say keeper fish. I'm talking little two-inch bluegill, five-inch largemouth. Just tons of fish would get in those Christmas trees, but seldomly would you would you shock up a quality three, four, five-pound bass. The hardwood trees, such as the sycamores, the oaks, trees with a bunch of mature branches, that was inevitably where all the big bass wanted to be. And so now we'll get really geeky right here for a second. <laughs> the question was why? You guys will dig this because it relates, real-world stuff. Just like a big buck has his preferences for habitat. The reason why was because the spacing between the branches, right? So think about it. Largemouth bass are laying weight predators. They're kind of lazy by their by their nature. Yeah. So they wanted somewhere where they could, you know, four pound bass could back in and not really touch the branches, but feel feel like he was in adequate cover to ambush shad or bluegill or whatever swam by. Well, he couldn't do that in a Christmas tree because the branches are so tight, right? And did I lose you? No, 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 you're no good. You're We're right. just listening intently. Yeah. We're taking yeah. notes. There's. <laughs> and we got really scribbling. we got really nerdy and we called it yeah we called it interstitial spacing like okay that's enough but yeah it was <laughs> the space between the branches determined what fish lived in a brush pile that's all your listeners really need to take home and it was flat out we we proved the truth of that with an electro fishing boat it was dude it was undisputable that bigger bass wanted to be in those big hardwood trees they hmm. They would almost never get into the into the old Christmas trees. I can I can kind of agree with that. Just in I guess some of my travels over the years, thinking thinking about it, 
usually I, I know of like three or four situations where that's 100 percent accurate yeah where i was standing out on top of a giant oak tree and fishing and as i reeled it in to pull it out this giant bass just come up and blew it up right at yeah. my feet you know that's pretty pretty interesting because then you know like like arthur moraine whatever oh yeah they, there's tons there's a program there where they go out and they drop christmas trees in the water i mean they tie yeah. a whole bunch together and they uh they drop them out in the water for habitat as yeah. well and that's usually a spot where you catch a lot of crappie and bluegill and stuff like yeah. that rather than the large yep. bass yeah an interesting sidebar when we were doing that study so there there was a secondary study going on where they were tagging fish at wednesday night jackpot tournaments they would tag bass and they were looking to see how far those bass left swam away from the release boat ramp where the little tournaments were held every Wednesday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of their tag fish, this is following me here. This is wild. One of their tag fish. So happened to decide he wanted to make one of my brush piles his home. Yeah. So my master's research went on for nine months for nine months. We shocked fish about, yeah. I can't remember once a week. I think it was that goofy largemouth with that tag. Let's say his, ta- <laughs> his tag was two, four, six, eight. Right, so that's how you knew there was a number on the tag hanging out of his belly. That goofy sucker stayed in that one brush pile. That largemouth did the entire duration of my nine-month study. I would shock him up at least once a week, measure him and weigh him, put him back in the water, come back a week or two later, shock him up again. Months, really? Yeah, total. I mean, they're homebodies. Largemouth, very different than smallmouth. Smallmouth are nomadic. They're roamers. They're aggressive. Yeah, largemouth are, largemouth are lazy, and that was like the epitome of that statement. Was <laughs> that one? I, I literally watched that fish grow, guys, over nine months. Like, let's just say when I started the first time I shocked him, he was like sixteen inches. Uh-huh. It was like seventeen inches by the end of my study, but never once left a brush pile the size. Really been yeah. enjoying it. Yeah, there must have been good food. Yeah, there. but you, but I, I could go on and on, but I've seen that in numerous studies on largemouth. There are. When I was at Juniata College there in Pennsylvania, my senior research project, we put transmitters in the bellies of five largemouth on Lake Raystown, and um, I mean, we tracked them. Big lake for people not familiar with area. There's a one, I think, the deepest lake in Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, other other than Kinzu. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, it's it's a big one. It's, it's, it's and stupid I regret deep. I didn't get to fish it more when I was at Juniata. Too busy studying all the time, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, we tracked five bass in the fall on Raystown, Pennsylvania, and the biggest one was a four-pounder, and she was blind in one eye, and she swam 4.2 miles in six weeks Jeez, up the lake and went into a lay-down tree. But the other four of the five that we put transmitters in, they literally swam out of the little release cove where we dumped them in the water, and I bet they didn't go a 1,000 yards, found a lay-down tree, and stayed there for six weeks. So... Largemouth are they're by their nature pretty lazy critters. Yeah, that's that's pretty well. I mean, they do usually have like the off limits zone by the boat launch by where they you know throw yep. a weight in fish yep. you know, for that reason, obviously, because you can go there the day after the tournament and put an absolute hurting on them. Yeah, so the fish I, I'm joking about that we shocked up over and over for nine months. So that's what they were actually studying. They wanted to see how far tournament released bass actually okay. swam, and that's just whatever the number was. Let's just say they tagged 100, 100 bass. Exactly 50%. It was like dead on 50%. Half of those fish that are released at any popular tournament ramp that are dumped right back in the lake, right at the ramp, I don't care where it is in this country, if they're largemouth, 
50% of them will never go more than about one mile from that ramp. Awesome. Everybody at home listening, write that down. <laughs> I'm jotting that down as we speak here yeah. since I fish the Wednesday nighters locally here. Yeah, Sabelli here, so. here might actually get on the podium one time. All right, let's not get crazy here. <laughs> well, that's why, you know, most of the stuff like saying 528 for local folk, you know, that's where they do the weigh-ins. The off-limit zone is pretty much that whole cove out, yeah. out and around. But, I mean, that's where historically if you want to catch a bass, you go near – the general area of that launch and the three fingers that run back there and you're going to catch bass. We call those ABC fish already been caught, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I'm fine with. They can fit in the uh, live well just as well as any other ones. <laughs> yeah. Rip lips or rip lips. I yeah. get it. Uh, but the other 50%, are you saying they made their way back to their original spot where they were caught or, or just, yeah. In, in some cases, yeah. Okay. In some cases, it, you know, the, and it was really cool. Because it, so we would depend on the guys fishing the Wednesday night tournament to, to bring us information. So, you know, if Jim, the tournament angler, he, he'd come to us and he would say, this was an ongoing study, obviously. We, we would go out there most every Wednesday night for many, many months. And here comes Jim, the tournament angler. He'd say, hey, man, I've got a tag fish. And then we would secretly ask him to show us on the map. We had a grid laid out, yeah. numbered. And he'd say, yeah, well, here's, here's, the, here's the very spot on the lake where I caught it. And then that allowed us to plot data points, right, and say, okay, here's where every tag fish that we've re-identified, that has been re-caught, if you will, here's where it was. And then that's how we fifth grade, fifth grade analysis here basically said, well, 50% of these dots never went more than a mile from the ramp, and, and 50% of the others did. But that's, I mean, that, that's, that, there's tremendous credibility to the fact that fish that are being long, released, released, from tournaments, whether they're small tournaments or large tournaments, same ramp. And you see this all over the country. Every reservoir has the tournament ramp, right? Where yep. eight, 80% of the events on that body of water go out of that spot, you know? And, um, it, and the fact that largemouth don't wander very far at all away, at least half of them, is it's a legit deal and it's almost concerning. You know, we, we, kind of, we see this at big grand lake of the cherokees in oklahoma fifty thousand acre body of water and when the Bassmaster classic my worlds collide here when the Bassmaster classic <laughs> came there in 2013 a whole lot of funding was put together at the state local chamber of commerce millions of dollars to build a gigantic launch ramp facility parking lot that you could land small jets in That's and wild. um and fortunately we got a great new facility unfortunately yeah. there are a lot of us that believe that because that ramp has now become the tournament spot that we really think just total theory here no sure way to prove this but based on what i just shared with you about research i mean we really believe that it's in some ways kind of hurt the bass fishing on grand because fish from all over that lake weekend after weekend after weekend for nine ten months out of the year are brought back to the wolf creek ramp and there's a lot of us that theorize that's not necessarily been a good thing for Grand Lake. Oh, I mean, based on what you just said, that makes sense. They're just yeah. kind of sucking the population into, you know, a smaller area of the lake, I guess, or a different area of the lake. Yeah. And if it's not a, a very conducive part of the lake with, uh, you know, cover and whatnot, I mean, that could definitely hurt the species as well. But I wonder if nobody's ever put the thought in with your research to say, hey, why don't we just transport these fish and drop them back somewhere else, you know, rotate oh, yeah. the, the yeah. drop. Yeah. Yeah. Know? And that's a good, that's a great, great statement. And yes, I need to be clear in saying that 
you know, they're definitely some of the more responsible, larger tournament organizations, um, thank heavens, have invested in pontoon release boats with live tanks on the decks of the pontoons. And they, you know, Bassmaster does that, right? Most organizations do. See, where I didn't realize take, that. I didn't realize that at all. Top, yeah, they take the top fish in a pontoon and drive, you know, a measurable distance away from the ramp and then literally pull a lever and release those fish. And and even on Grand Lake, Oklahoma, that I referenced, we, we, there are good organizations that do exactly that. So, and we're very thankful for that. But, and it's all a numbers game and a frequency game, right? So, you know, a body of water maybe in western Pennsylvania that doesn't receive near the tournament pressure that something that a body of water in at Lay Lake, Alabama, or Logan Martin, Alabama, or Grand Lake, Oklahoma, Lake Texoma. I mean, where bass fishing is an absolute way of life, and every stinking weekend you've got a tournament or two, or in some cases three tournaments going out on that same body of water. That's so. It's up. My my thoughts and theories here obviously are dependent on on frequency. It's not the same on every body of water, but on those where tournament fishing is is a big deal and happens every weekend it certainly dispersing those fish or not dispersing them can have a definite effect on on the overall fishery and your ability to catch them or not catch them oh i mean that absolutely makes sense especially if you're getting that much traffic for sure i mean you figure what if you got like a hundred hundred angler you know lineup I mean, how many fish you think that is? I mean, it's over a hundred fish. You would think if everybody at least catches yeah. one, obviously, you know, right. That's, yeah. that's a lot of fish, you know? Yeah. Dumped in a lot area. of our team tournaments are 200 boat events. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a silly amount of fish, especially if guys are catching bags and limits, yeah. you know, like that's, that's a, a ridiculous amount of fish, you know, into one little area there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's an argument to be made then, you know, why Sabelli over here hasn't reached the podium yet on hey, a Wednesday. Hey, hey, listen, <laughs> listen now in, in my, I'll let you finish burying me because <laughs> the people finishing at the top, I mean, ideally could be going to the same spot, fishing the same brush piles, catching the same kind of bass week after week. And there there's consistency that those bass keep returning to that spot. I mean, there's actual science backing the fact that they could be doing something like that where you yeah. you're you're going out really struggling letting everyone know where not to fish because there's you can't catch any listen i'm trying to help the healthy population wow. of boaters in this area figure out where not to go so i'm doing my part it's just not the you know well, most positive well, i really outcomes. i really hope after today and after talking to guck here that you can learn something from this and, and i'm gonna Saturday, go back through comb through this yeah, conversation and start writing down some pointers. i, I really think this is gonna be a huge benefit to him in all reality because <laughs> there's actual science to, okay look get yourself get yourself a 316 ounce shaky head uh-huh and a straight tail worm, some 10 pound test on a spinning reel, and just, just stay as close as you legally can to those release areas. And just, just tell me how that turns out when, when I'm back. Well, on. there's, there's one, <laughs> there's one more day left. They've gone through the regular Wednesday night routine and now it's just the championship day here coming up September 11th, I think. So I will definitely be doing that. Yeah. One thing. Like I Arthur? Yes. Yes. And that's <laughs> what I, I will say of all the local fishery. And I, did you hear the disdain in his voice when he yeah. said Lake Arthur? The, that body of water of all the places I've fished over the last like 20 years, I will say is consistently the most difficult, not because really? it's challenging in, in the sense that like, you know, the terrain or the water is crazy. The pressure there 
is unbelievable. I'm sure, you know, obviously every fishery gets pressure, but if you get there in the spring at, you know, just after ice down and you get out there, I'll put a hurting on them every damn day. But when you start to get to like spawn time and, you know, around tournament time, it is the most brutal lake to fish in my opinion, in our area, without a doubt. Interesting. So, so like where, where do you enjoy going the most? Give me your top one or two. Locally, Pimatuming is probably my favorite. And then probably second would be Allegheny River. What, what do you, what do you, I've heard good, I actually heard good things about Pimatuming not long ago from a guy back home there. What, 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 what do you like about Pimatuming? It's, it's big enough that you can kind of get away from people, but it also has like a very diverse layout, I guess would be the word. Like it, depending on what time of year or whatever, you can get in shallow. There's enough cover to flip. There's little islands and coves you can get back in, pitch, throw a jig, you know, when it gets hot out in the dog days, it's deep enough. You can get out on some rock shoals, get after some smallmouth on a drop shot. There's lily pads. You know, there's yeah. there's a little bit of everything out Defined there. Defined zones. Yeah. You know, that it's not like it, say, Lake Arthur again. You have, you know, your one or two, three things that are kind of the go-to out there. And it's like you can adjust, but it doesn't really do much for you most of the time out there where it's kind of a numbers game. You just got to. Or at least we're not to the level yet where we can make that well that transition to get those extra bites that you need. Yeah, I know it, I'm not. <laughs> I, I can get bites out there, but like I said in the you know, the later later into the season, you can catch numbers out there, but catching the keepers, those, you know, very pressured fish, like we said, that have been, you know, potentially caught once or twice already, you know, it's it's a harder lake to fish for sure in that regard, I think. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm I miss I miss being able to fish around there some, man. That Especially because when I left there, you know, my honestly, when I left Western Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania in general, to be honest, my my bass fishing knowledge was a small fraction of what it is now. And so there's honestly been a lot of times in recent years and as recently as this past July, a couple months ago, last month, I was in your neck of the woods. Um, I was headed up to cover the St. Lawrence River okay. Bassmaster Elite Series in mid-July. And I, I spent time on the front end of that trip and in western pennsylvania with mom and dad and then also time on the back end and you know i drove most so i flew into pittsburgh and then i borrowed my mom's car and went up to the st lawrence and so i was able to you know i drove past wilhelm and knew i was yep. near mm-hmm. so you drove Fresh right by Bay. me and yeah not to be overly sentimental man but there's a big part of my heart and soul that just just itches to to just have the time maybe in retirement or whatever to just come back there and and just sample some of those waterways that were a part of my childhood with a lot more bass fishing knowledge now 30 years later and just truly enjoy here we go figuring them out you know i would i would love that opportunity man obviously at this point in my life and career i don't have the time that affords me just to come back there and kick around for a week or two but man when i was through there just as recently as 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 july last month it it does dude It, it tugs at my heart to be able to get on those waterways again and, and figure them out well when the day finally comes you you have some <laughs> contacts up here now yeah heck yeah dude yeah well we're we're definitely definitely at the time limit here i'd hate to hate to keep you any longer i know we said about an hour we're, if we're like at an hour and a half now which is uh, i mean awesome awesome talks we've had but uh is there anything in closing you kind of want to throw out there that uh you want the folks at home to hear uh no, I just I'm honored, honestly. I just I, I think that's just the fact that I'm on here is a cool story into itself. We didn't know each other from Adam, 
social media somewhat randomly connected us and um really a cool sentimental deal for me personally to get be on be on a show with a bunch of guys from as kenny chesney says back where i come from <laughs> you know, it, it's just, I, I shared that I was going to do this with my mom and dad and just, you know, it touched their hearts too. It's kind of a full circle deal, right? Because <clears throat> hunting and fishing was not a big part of the culture when I was growing up there. In other words, all my high school buddies, all they, they were, they were, they were sticking ball sports guys, right? Baseball, yeah. football. And I was really kind of the outcast and, and a little bit misunderstood for my passion for fishing because it just wasn't really a big part of the culture where versus a kid that grows up in, east texas or oklahoma or alabama or georgia where fishing is absolutely a part of culture yeah and um so yeah the fact that i i, I grew up there i leave there 30 years ago to chase this dream you know and and then we here we find ourselves on a on a saturday morning in Full august circle. 22 reconnecting with some guys from right back home is, yeah. is just really cool so I'm sure that a number of your listeners are from that area, and I just I just want them to know that that I still have a sentimental connection to that area. My mom and dad are still there, and it's been a real honor to be be on here with you guys. I love it, and I, like I said before, I just appreciate you even answering my message whenever I whenever I tried to get a hold of you that first time. Yeah, and people listen want to you know kind of we connected on Instagram, so I'm yeah. Guck. My name is obviously Alan McGuckin. Everybody started calling me Guck when I was in seventh grade. And literally, dudes, when I was in when I was in high school and college, professors and teachers would call on me when I'd raise my hand and go, "Guck." So, no, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Nobody calls me Alan. So, if people want to find me, if they're on social media, it's Guck G U C K, just like it sounds. Guck fishing, G U C K, Guck fishing on Instagram. Awesome. We appreciate the hell out of you coming on here, and uh, we're gonna have to book one up here, maybe after the classic, and kind of recap or next year or something. But we'll definitely be in touch for sure. Yeah, let's. We'll make a habit of it, man. And you know, we we went through the sort of the regimen of my normal days out here. So yeah, mid mornings, man. Anytime we can get get Saturday mornings are, are a good time. So um, this certainly won't be the last time, and I, I hope it becomes even more frequent. So. Awesome. Dial me up and um, just know that I'm honored to have been on with you guys. We appreciate it, guys. As always, go like and subscribe. Check us out on our social media at Northern Outcast Outdoors and the Whitetail Distraction Podcast, which is where this episode will be streaming. Obviously, you know that if you're listening to it. But check us out, guys. We appreciate the hell out of it. Guys, Alan McGuckin, the people's champ, guys. Amazing. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs>